Turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We continue uh, after a five-week break. Um, thank you, uh, my friends, uh, church family, for giving me that long rest. Um, I'm grateful for uh, Dan and, and Joel serving well in the pulpit um, and, uh, and for uh, Bill and, and, and as well helping uh, with a number of uh, items uh, while... Um, while I was given a brief respite. Uh, but we pick back up in 1 Corinthians, um, and, uh, uh, and, and that's a good illustration, uh, hearing that child, right? This is normal. Days in which we, or, uh, weeks in which we celebrate communion, we have the kids in so parents can teach their kids about the Lord's table. Um, and so don't be embarrassed if your kid um, acts like a kid. We're used to those sounds in this sanctuary. Um, okay, so 1 Corinthians chapter 11, we're going to be in the la- last half of the chapter, so 17 through 34, and I've entitled this sermon, Love Around the Table. But maybe we need just a brief you know, reminder about what this series is about. After all, it's been several weeks. Uh, remember that this letter is a call for the church to be the spiritual people that God created them to be in Jesus. It's a, it's a call to grow and mature into the people of God that have experienced rebirth by the Spirit, salvation in the Son, and adoption as sons and daughters of our Father in heaven. We're a new people. We're new creation. And Paul's saying, live like it. And I'm going to go through all of these different ways in which you need to live like spiritual people. And that includes how we come together in corporate worship. And um, you may recall that when we started chapter 11, I indicated to you that it was the beginning of a new section in the letter. It was a section that was, in fact, devoted to issues about corporate worship. Our worship ought to flow from the great reality that we've been transformed into uh, people who are able to put God's love for us in Christ on display. When people come into a worship service of the living God, they ought to see something, uh, something different about the people that are worshiping. There ought to be the love of Christ on display in this sort of transformation transformational way. And that display includes our mutual love and respect for each other as we worship our Savior. But we don't always do that, do we? I mean, that's great. That's, that's great to have this as this banner, as this we ought to be these spiritual people that love each other and that love's on display even in our worship. But it always doesn't work out that way, does it? I mean, if you've been in a church for longer than a minute, you've seen yourself and other people fail in this we can feel disgust for our brother and then join in song about christ's love as if there's no disconnect there we can despise a woman in our church and seemingly have no problem sitting next to her as we join in corporate prayer about our need to grow in holiness We can even think ourselves more worthy than our neighbor of celebrating what God has lavished on us. In mercy, though, in mercy, the Lord speaks to us this morning in His Word. In fact, this word of correction, 
For when wicked hearts bring division to the worship of the Lord, even at the table. We're going to celebrate the Lord's table this morning at the conclusion of the sermon. And this text is all about the table. But if you're like me, you've, you've approached the table in the past when things weren't always right between you and a brother or a sister. When you've had a, an attitude of arrogance when you've had a spirit of division. That brings no honor to the Lord, and it's not the kind of spiritual people that we're to be, at none, not, not even to say, the spiritual people that we ought to be putting on display as we worship. So, so if any of those things struck a chord in you, it's a good thing you're here today. Because we've got a text just uh, for this that the Lord has written for us, preserved for us, and given to us uh, for this morning so that we might be transformed from one degree of glory to another. So pay careful attention. Kids, uh, Pastor Jeff's about to read the Word of God, so pay careful attention. Be quiet. Listen in. This is God's Word, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 17. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you. Because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you, ha- do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes." Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged." But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. What I hope to convince you of this morning is that this text is about this. Listen to this sentence. I'm going to read it to you. It's the theme of the text. 
I'm going to keep coming back to it. But this is what I want you to take away with. This is what I want us to hang the sermon on, if you will. It's this. Remembering how you got to the table helps you love others who are there with you. Remembering how you got to the table, that is the Lord's table. Remembering how you got there will help you love others who you'll meet, who you'll gather around that table with. Now, as we walk through this crucial passage, I mean, this is, we quote from this passage every time we celebrate communion. I mean, this is a real pivotal uh, text. But as we, as we walk through it this morning, this passage on being spiritual people as we approach the Lord's table, I want you to imagine a three-course dinner with rather transparent names. This is just something for you to hang, hang the outline of the sermon on, okay? So first we'll look at an arrogant appetizer. We'll follow that with a sacrificial supper. And then, forgive me, an examination espresso. Let's walk through each of these as we look at our text. Something to hang our our points on so that we might remember the flow of the text. So first, an arrogant appetizer in Corinth. Now, during this first course, we get our, our first taste of Paul's instruction. It's this, that forgetting the significance of the table brings harm to the church. This is during this arrogant appetizer, this lead-up to the Lord's table. What has transpired in the church before they celebrated communion? They had forgotten the significance of the table. And, and when we do that, it brings harm to the church. Look at verse 17 again. I do not commend you because when you come together, it's not for the better, but for the worse. Is there a worse thing? Is there a worse judgment that could be said about the church as they gather for worship? I cannot commend you. When you get together, you're the worse for it. I mean, this is scathing uh, 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 critique here. Now, as I mentioned, chapter 11 opened this new section of the letter. Uh, it, it's here uh, Paul began to address concerns about the public worship of the Corinthian church. The chapter opened with Paul commending them. Look, look back, you'll see it in verse 2 there. He commended them for maintaining the traditions that he had delivered to them. By traditions, Paul means the Christian doctrine, the teaching, right? But also how they were to live in light of that teaching. He commended them for remembering the, the doctrine and, and how to apply that doctrine in their lives, But even as Paul wrote those words, and those words of praise and those words of encouragement about many things, no doubt, many things he had taught them and lived out before them, even then he was pondering their great error in taking communion, how they celebrated the Lord's table. Their error was that they viewed the rich and the privileged among them as of greater significance than those who were down the socioeconomic ladder. The, 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 the rich were seen as more important than those that were needy. Look at verse 18 there, the first part. When you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. Now that sounds pretty generic at this point. That The divisions uh, here... 
the context tells us are, are not the same divisions that Paul had mentioned earlier in the letter. You may remember the first few chapters of, of this letter of 1 Corinthians. Paul's constantly talking about the divisions in the church. There it was over which church leader they were following, you might remember. I follow Paul, and I follow Apollos, and I follow Cephas. You remember that? That's not the divisions that Paul refers to here. Now these divisions are divisions of the people in the church based on socioeconomic terms. The privileged were being treated more favorably than the poor. Now it appears that the Corinthians celebrated the Lord's table as, as, as a part of some kind of fellowship meal. Perhaps, with, uh, perhaps after everyone had eaten a, a lunch like we're going to have. So if we reordered our day today and we, we went and had lunch in the gymnasium and then came back in here for the Lord's table, that might be a little closer to the pattern that the Corinthians had, uh, had taken. But notice the fragmentation of the church while they ate. Look, look there at verse 21. Do you see it? In eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry Another gets drunk. That's the kind of division that Paul was referring to. Imagine in the lead-up to the Lord's table, we all brought our, our individual meals just for our own families to eat. One family brings a huge array of food and, and gorges themselves like it was Thanksgiving where they unbutton their jeans afterwards and groan about how, how they've eaten too much. At the same time, one table over. Imagine another family whose father has been jobless for six months. They've, they've used up their savings on medical bills and trying to stay in the home that they're, that they're raising their children in. This family brings a few mouthfuls of a third-day uh, leftovers for their family of five. Afterwards, their stomachs are grumbling as they watch the first family scrape off more of their excess into the garbage than they've just eaten. Imagine that, just before the church gathered together for the Lord's table. What does such a scene portray about how the people think of one another? What a picture of selfishness. No concern for others, no love for neighbors in distress, no honor or sacrifice for those whom Christ died and gave to the other as brothers and sisters in their own church. This is exactly not what spiritual people look like as they approach the table. This is what the preparation for the table looked like in Corinth, though. That's why I've called it an arrogant appetizer. The death of Christ remembered at the Lord's table, the significance of that ordinance that we, that we celebrate and churches of like faith around the world for generations have celebrated, the death of Christ remembered at the table is what the Corinthians should have been preparing for as they ate their own meals. It's what we should be doing on Saturday as we look forward to celebrating the Lord's table on the next day. 
Others should be treated like family, those that God has given to us, loved as one loves oneself. For remembering and celebrating the sacrificial death of Christ is the great leveler. I was amazed how the Spirit of God took Bill in his prayer for the church this morning on this very point. The cross of Christ slays arrogance and its resulting divisiveness. The the crucified Savior is the great unifier of the church in the salvation that he brings. As Paul would write elsewhere to the Galatians, in Christ Jesus you're all sons of God through faith. There's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Hallelujah. Partaking in the Lord's table then celebrates that unity in Christ, that indiscriminate view of all who were saved by his death. To approach the table with feelings of superiority, to prepare for communion by marginalizing those you see as somehow less than yourself, to approach the table without loving those God has put in your church family who are in need, it is simply a failure to see the significance of the table in the first place. And it brings harm to the church. It tears people down rather than building them up. It puts up walls and makes people feel on the outside. I mean, the irony of just the words used in this first section, in verses 17 through 22, three times in the section, verse 17, 18, and 20, we read that phrase, coming together. And it's contrasted, though, with the divisiveness that happened when they did. In fact, failing to love others and then going through the motions of taking the communion elements is hypocrisy. Celebrating the haves while humiliating the have-nots by pretending to hold hands with them at the table, this is no worship of Christ, friends. That's not love, but disgust wrapped in meaningless religion meant to make yourself feel godly while treating others as worthless. It's in fact a meal that celebrates you rather than Jesus. Look how Paul puts it in verse 20, again in 22. He says, when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. That's in 20. Second half of 22. What shall I say to you then? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. Approaching communion with worldly thinking about those in the church destroys the meaning of the ordinance. This, is, this was the big problem in Corinth. And friends, we have this problem from time to time as well, if we're honest. So, so we've got to lean in. We've got to see this text as, as helping us address the sins that rise up in our own hearts. When we think about other people in the church as, as an annoyance not worth our time, not worth our love, this kind of thing. It makes, it makes communion, it makes, the, it makes going through the motions of celebrating the life-saving sacrifice of Jesus as a sham. I know you don't want that. I don't want that. Embracing partiality, favoring only those who are like you, who share your situation, celebrates you, not Christ. It's practically despising the church of God, Paul says. 
You know, I just met a, a pastor this last week. I had coffee with him, and, uh, and, and he's a pastor of what used to be an all-white church. And uh, the, the, the church leadership in recent years made a deliberate decision that they were going to minister Christ to the mostly African-American neighborhood in which the church was found. And by God's grace, over the course of a few years, they have seen many neighbors come to Christ, which has changed the look of the church. It's changed the culture of the church, the music of the church, the food of the church, the, the fellowship of the church. It's a cool thing, isn't it? Christ saves people from all different places and all different cultures and races. Sadly, the pastor told me that a large group of white church members left the church because they felt like it was no longer their church because of all the changes. And I just, I wonder, did they despise them, those whom Christ saved and added to their number? Was their precursor to the Lord's Supper an arrogant appetizer, perhaps? Okay, it's easy to take a pot shot about some church I just referenced that you don't know anybody at, okay? What about you? What if a large number of Syrians or Iranians came to Christ and became part of our church and maybe outnumbered us who are mostly white? How would you deal with that? Would you see that as God's grace, as his blessing, building his church? Or would you, in your mind, approach it with divisions? You see, it's easy for our hearts to go here. It's, we, we, we doubt that that's possible, right? That we would ever do that. But, but, but it's absolutely possible. Our, our hearts are desperately wicked, the prophet tells us. How would you deal with people who spoke differently than you, ate different foods, enjoyed different styles of worship music? Would you embrace them or maintain a distance? What if our church doubled in size, but the new people were people of no wealth? People who had very little in terms of money. People who had only tattered clothes and were unable to contribute financially to the mission of the church significantly. In fact, people who often needed help from others in order to meet their everyday needs. Would you welcome them? Or would you try to create space between your old friends and these new needy people? Are there some other ways of discrimination that you tend to fall into. Friends, perhaps today's a day to repent of such things. Examine your heart. Ask, ask God to help you see yourself clearly so that he could make you into the spiritual people that he saved you at the cost of a son to be. What a Sunday morning that would be. Oh, may we learn from Paul's rebuke of the Corinthians. May we remember how we got to the table that we might love those who gather around it with us. Okay, so that's the appetizer in Corinth, the meal that preceded the Lord's table. It was marked by arrogance, by self-serving motives, by division, by despising the needy, by a lack of love and care for others. And it got to this terrible place because the church had forgotten the significance of the table. The 
church had forgotten the significance of the Lord's table. Is that possible here at Union Lake? Is it possible for you? Don't be naive, friends. Don't, buy, don't be naive. Even redeemed sinners can get spiritual amnesia. We can all return to thinking we are the hero of our own story instead of the Savior. I mean, Peter wrote of the danger of forgetting that you've been cleansed from your former sins. And that results in a stagnant life in terms of spiritual qualities. You can read about that in 2 Peter chapter 1. The Apostle John wrote to the Ephesian church famously in the book of Revelation in chapter 2 how they had abandoned the love they once had for Jesus Christ. This is why we need to remember how we got to the table, to remember the significance of the table. For when we do, it helps us love others who are there with us. It helps us to be the spiritual people God saved us to be. Well, let's press forward. We've looked at the first course I've asked you to imagine, a a terrible course, an appetizer of arrogance, but let's now turn to the main course, the the meal that changes everything, the, the meal that reminds the church of the significance of how they got to the table in the first place. For those who have let their love for Christ grow cool, for those who have allowed themselves to create factions in their minds, Let us consider the main course, if you will. It's what I've termed the sacrificial supper. We see it in the middle of our text in verses 23 through 26. We've already seen that forgetting the significance of the table brings harm to the church. That's, That's what happened in that sort of arrogant appetizer. In recounting what Paul had received from the Lord, though, He leads the church to remember the significance of the table, to remember the significance of what Christ accomplished for sinners. Here are the familiar words again that give shape to the sacrificial supper. Now, you've heard these words a lot, so you have to tune in. Lean into these words, friends. Verse 23. The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. In the same way, verse 25, In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Now this section has more than that, but I want to just focus on these words for a few moments. Right away, we notice the vastly different heart seen in remembering the night when Christ instituted the Lord's Supper. The vastly different heart from that, that meal where everyone was gorging themselves and leaving other people to starve. The different tone from that, that sort of course to this one. Just the way the words are phrased, the, the meaning, the, the logic that's used here. <clears throat> Paul had reminded them of the Lord's words when he instituted the Lord's Supper in the first place. First, it was done after supper. You see that in verse 25? Seems like an insignificant detail, but Luke records that the supper had been the Passover that they had eaten. Israel's remembrance of God delivering them from death through believing him that a lamb being killed in their place would spare them from his wrath. Wrath they they deserved. 
just before Jesus introduced his disciples to the words that explain the Lord's table, Luke records what he said. Verse 20, Luke 22, verse 15. I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. The Lord had looked forward not to eating his own meal, not to having some grand buffet that he alone would eat while others would have to fare for themselves. No, he had looked forward to sharing a meal of true fellowship with them. He had arranged everything, you might remember. Sent, go, go to this person that's pulling a donkey, and there's already a room prepared. You remember? He told the disciples. Everything had already been set for it. He had made sure of it. And the significance of their coming together was because he would sacrifice everything for their good in his suffering. Even though one would betray him and all would eventually abandon him. He would fulfill the meaning of the Passover by dying in the place of sinners. Just as that, those, those sacrificial lambs had died in the place of those inside in Egypt. He would fulfill the meaning of the Passover by absorbing God's holy anger upon himself in the place of those who had placed their trust in him. The Savior was eager to eat with them in a way that would point to him putting their needs above his own and doing so at the greatest possible cost to himself. Notice the symbols that that Jesus explains symbols the elements we'll use this morning bread being broken for them symbolizing his body being tortured on their behalf to the point of death the cup filled with wine that looked like his blood that would drain from his body as he would die on the cross paying for them his self-giving death would do more than strengthen them with food much more It would provide them with rescue from God's wrath to come. For faith in his sacrifice would initiate the new covenant. Not like the old covenant that would require endless animal sacrifices for sin. No, the new covenant promised long ago through the prophets. He would make with them and in so doing provide them with forgiveness for sins. And that eternally. A life guided by the Spirit He would provide for them. An ability to live a life worthy of His sacrifice and the hope of eternal life. His words are so rich with meaning. And remember why they're offered here. Paul is trying to take the Corinthian church and say, remember the significance of the Savior's death. Remember why you celebrate the Lord's table. Remember. Notice, too, the refrain to remember. Do you see it there? In in verse 24 and 25, he repeats, Do this in remembrance of me. Don't do this unthinkingly. Don't do this as sort of some rote thing that the church sort of does. It's religious in nature. Nobody really gets it. No, friends, do it in remembrance of what Jesus did. When you approach the Lord's table, don't try to distinguish yourself. Don't see the church as made up of people of different sexes or ages or races or riches. Remember that all who receive God's favor come at the price of uh, the same price. 
of Christ's sacrifice. Take the bread and remember his body which hung in death that everybody needed to happen to be saved. Remember his blood was spilled. So when you take the cup, remember that he did this to initiate the covenant for you and all who would turn to him in faith. Even as we continue to participate in this sober yet glorious table, we proclaim again and again that He died for all of us. It's communion. We're taking it together. It's a a celebration of unity uh, in salvation. And when we do this, we look forward to the day when we will be unified in glory until He comes, verse 26 tells us. So this is the sacrificial supper. This this is the massive, transforming significance of the table. Remembering how you got there makes a difference in your life. It changes you. It enables you to love the people that you gather around that table with. And so we must remember, especially as we see our love for others in, uh, uh, rather decrease and our love for for ourselves increase. That happens. We see ourselves being less patient with other people. and We start seeing ourselves as more prominent and more worthy. When we experience those sort of sinful uh, outflows, we have to remember. To go back and remember the significance of the table. Especially when we see divisions start to happen in the church. Look again at the table and remember. Look again at the sacrifice of the beautiful, holy, eternal Son of God who sacrificed everything so all of His people might live. This necessarily then causes us to examine whether we are living in a way that reflects that great love. Are we living as the spiritual people that God made us to be through Jesus? Yes, remembering how you got to the table helps you love others who are there with you. It helps to expose the ways you're not loving other people. And so, this is the natural move now to this third course. We began with the ugliness of the arrogant appetizer, rife with selfishness and and, and division. Then we moved to the sacrificial supper where we were reminded of of what Christ did to buy our seat at the table. And finally, we moved to the examination espresso. It's in these last few verses. What I'm trying to capture with this idea of an after-dinner coffee is this time of reflection. I know I like to have a good cup of coffee after a especially nice meal. I like, to, I like to sip on a really good cup of coffee and rejoice over this sumptuous meal I've just had to consider how good it was. And that's what Paul calls the Corinthians to do here in the, at the final move in this text. They'd been reminded of how they had gotten to the table of the cost to their Savior, for them to be among the redeemed. And now they were to examine themselves. Look at verse 27 there. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Verse 28 then begins, Let a person examine himself then. 
Participating in the Lord's table is for those who have turned away from their former life and have put themselves, put themselves wholly in the hands of Jesus who died for them. It's for born-again Christians. It's for, it's for people that, that used to mock the Savior but now loves Him and follows Him. That's who the table is for. But it is possible, as I've said, to be forgetful of that fact for Christians. And either partake of the elements mindlessly or even harboring selfishness and bitterness while you do. This is what Paul means by coming to the table in an unworthy manner. In the sense that it testifies falsely to what the gospel accomplishes in the lives of Christians. As I said, we're supposed to, in our worship, in, in the celebration of the table, we're, we're supposed to come forward as spiritual people and put our love for Jesus on display when we worship. So when we come to the table in an unworthy manner, holding division in our heart, holding bitterness in our heart, then we're saying something that's false as we approach the table. This is what Paul means here about coming in an unworthy manner. And so it's proper to examine ourselves before participating in the table. Not simply for a few moments right before we take the elements, though do that, but we should be living introspective lives. At the end of our days, praying and asking the Lord to reveal where we have fallen short, where sin has sort of taken up residence in our thinking, and, and repent of those things and ask Him to help us and restore us. It's, that's the pathway to the worthy way to the table. It's not like you make yourself good enough to participate in the table. That's not what's, what Paul is saying. None of us are good enough. We come in the righteousness of Jesus right? But we don't want to mock that righteousness. We don't want to mock his, his uh, sacrifice by, by, uh, by, by not thinking about the cost to him and then changing, being transformed in the way we love other people as a result. He says we, there's this obligation to discern the body there in our text. And there's some there's some argument about whether that's Jesus' body or the, the body that is the church. I believe it, pri it primarily is the body of the church he's speaking of there, though we're all one in Jesus, so I don't know that we need to parse it quite that finely. We ought to discern the body, that is the church family, and how we're relating to those within it as we approach the table. In Christ, we're we are all one. We participate in, in, in Christ's death all together. So we must look to whether we are loving others, caring for them, sacrificing for them. None of us do this perfectly, of course. So we're to regularly examine ourselves and repent when we give in to wicked partiality, particularly ignoring and, and, and marginalizing those in great need among us and ignoring you know, when people are in, are in real want. So be warned, brothers and sisters. Be warned of this lazy lack of self-examination that all of us do from time to time. The Father disciplines those He loves, and His discipline can be severe at times to, to wake us up to the reality that we need to be living in a way that's, that's worthy of Christ's death. When we fail to examine ourselves, though our eternity is secure, He does judge us in the sense of disciplining us in our stubbornness and sickness and selfishness, rather. 
Paul reminds the Corinthians that, they had ha- that this had happened in their midst already as the Lord had brought sickness and even death to some to correct them. We see that in verses 29 and 30. But don't only be warned. Friends, take courage. Take courage, brothers and sisters. Though none of us is worthy to sit at the Lord's table, He is spiritually present with us when we do. Did you hear me? He is spiritually present with us at the table when we come to it. The bread and wine do not magically become His body and blood, as some churches teach, wrongly. Some even sort of suggest that His body and blood sort of are are all around it, next to it, and underneath it, and, and that's not true. The Lord Jesus sits resurrected on the throne of David in heaven, reigning over us today. He doesn't get re-sacrificed when when we celebrate the Lord's table. But He does come and dine with us. He's spiritually present with us. And He gives us spiritual strength. It's a means of grace. A a means of strength to to help us keep running the race. Resetting our thinking. Resetting uh, and evaluating ourselves. And seeing that even when we do fall short towards other people, His sacrifice was more than enough. He's not done with us, and he's continuing to transform us from one degree of glory to the next. People who love others as he did, that's what we're becoming. And so Paul ends with what our examination should yield. A a real coming together. Coming together, welcoming one another, waiting for each other, providing for one another. That's what we see in 33 and 34 there. And Paul intimates in the final verse that more instruction awaits them still, but this is enough for one meal. So guard yourself, friends, from times of arrogant appetizers, times when we forget the significance of the Lord's table. Consider again the sacrificial supper, the substance that's beneath the elements. Remember what Christ did to bring you to his table. And drink in an examination espresso, if you will. Consider the goodness of being in Christ and draw spiritual strength to love Him and others as you've been loved. May that set our affections rightly this morning. May that set our minds rightly so that we might properly come together around the table. Remembering how you got to the table helps you love others who are there with you, and we're all about to be together around the table.